you um, to everyone for joining. I'm very fortunate to have attorney Dave Spister here with us. Um, he's going to be the lead here, um, going to share a wealth of information, a little background of Dave. I've known him for a couple of years, very fortunate to call him a friend and colleague. And um, he's been primarily focusing in removal to fund asylum work, family-based petition. He has an office out in Boston. Um, he has a beautiful family, two beautiful kids. Um, so they thank you so much for joining us and actually taking some time. Today's topic is a topic that's even in our community of attorneys have been something that um, others have asked uh, and willing your willingness to share is going to provide hopefully more awareness and support um, and, and how to do this, right? Because there's a lot of information. So we're hoping to address every question today. So if you have any questions, we're hoping you just hold them until the end. Thank you. I'm gonna turn it over to Dave with the first slide. Great. Um, so thank you just before uh, we get started, but thank you to Eloa, thank you to Noah and to the uh, the BBA for putting this together. Um, I can't promise you that I will be able to answer every question, but I will definitely um, do my best. And uh, you know, it's uh, there's a lot that's sort of unpredictable and unknown about this program, but it's really important that um, anytime you interact with um, undocumented immigrants in our community, that you're aware of this program as a possibility uh, that they might qualify for. Um, and so, like Aloha said, you know, we'll be able to answer any questions that you have. Um, but just to get started, I think it's important. Um, there's not a lot that's known about deferred action. Um, a lot of times, even seasoned practitioners will say, oh, deferred action, you mean DACA. You mean DACA, which, uh, as you may know, is deferred action for childhood arrivals. Um, so that's uh, the commonly known as the DREAM Act. It was passed by the Obama administration in 2012 for people who came as young children and grew up here and have been in the United States for, for many years. Um, so there's basically deferred action, which is the umbrella term used to describe any types of uh, favorable action that USCIS, which is the agency within the Department of Homeland Security that they will exercise on a given case. Um, so we're gonna talk today about medical deferred action, which is again for uh, people who can show uh, like a serious humanitarian uh, concern or condition that they need to remain here in the United States and can't return to their country for any reason. Um, but DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, you know, other types of deferred action is, is included in this overall umbrella. So again, it's not the same thing. It's a common mistake. And we're going to talk today about uh, medical deferred action. So ready for the next slide. Thank you, Dave. So the, the next question is, what is deferred action? So it is an opportunity for people with particular humanitarian cases to apply for temporary. And thankfully, it can be renewed uh, for a period of lawful presence. Uh, the lawful presence term can also be a tricky term. I, I often have to explain clients what that mean. Um, although it's not meaning lawful immigration status, for admissibility purposes, I just wanted to point this out, just mean that for a period of time, you're not accruing unlawful presence. Um, and also in cases where it's granted, they allow you to, so first the case has to be granted, right? In DACA cases, you can apply for a work permit simultaneously, but with this type of case, um, 
you'd have to wait for an approval, then apply for a work permit. And nowadays, USCIS has been producing work permits um, and the Social Security Department has also been doing it simultaneously. Um, not, not available for everyone. Um, it needs to be a compelling case. And this is important to note. I often get clients uh, who, you know, it's a word of mouth referral like, oh, Elwin did my case. Um, your kid is, you know, has this certain issue. Why don't you contact her? I think you're going to be able to work with her on this case. And I often have to turn people down because it's not a much of a compelling case. Um, so what I've been doing, and just a little tip for all of you, is when there is a consultation, when someone or I flag that potentially this is a, a compelling case, I often ask, them to consult with me again and next time bring me some medical documents or we take on a case as a case analysis first. So a compelling case, um, and I, I'm sure Dave can go over a few examples, um, have to be something in a, a situation where we can show that here in the United States, the person who's requiring medical care needs to be here, that this is the place, adequate care, quality care um, and that there are continuous medical appointments, continuous um, treatments for that. So it has to be compelling. It cannot just be any type of case. Now going on to types of deferred action and, and, and Dave did go over a little bit about DACA. Um, there are spouses, military, deceased veterans, type of humanitarian groups. Uh, we also with deferred action, um, it's almost like a generic term that DHS has created um, and what it does is it just won't allow a removal. So I always tell my clients, almost like you're under umbrella. Um, if ICE is in contact with you or DHS, um, they see that you have deferred action granted, um, then you're okay to stay. You don't, you don't have to fear removal. Um, in addition, you get this work permit. Um, so it just for some temporary time. Majority of the cases that we deal with deferred actions, as you can see, um, is through medical. So we're going to go to where to apply, Dave. We can help with sure. that. So the let's say you meet with somebody in your office, or you uh, speak to someone on the phone, and you realize that they might be uh, a decent candidate for for medical deferred action. Um, you have to say, well, who has jurisdiction over the application? Where are we going to apply? And there are two different ways uh, or, or avenues that you can uh, pursue an application for deferred action. And like a lot of uh, cases within immigration law, it depends whether the person is currently in removal proceedings. So if they're in immigration court at the time when you encounter them, or if they're not in removal proceedings. So when you're in removal proceedings, it has to go through the local ICE field office. Um, that can be a little tricky. We're not really gonna focus on that for today. Um, but what we're going to focus on for today is for people who um, may have entered on a visa and overstayed a visa, may have entered without inspection, but are not, for whatever reason, in removal proceedings at the time, um, and how to apply, you could say, affirmatively with USCIS, um, again, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, which is the agency within DHS, within Homeland Security, that adjudicates these types uh, of applications. So we're going to focus on people who are not currently in removal proceedings, how they apply with USCIS. And again, they, I should mention, 
Um, it's not at a lockbox where you might file uh, a major application or a form. It's not with a service center. Everything is done at the local field office. Uh, everything is done. So in Boston, it would be in Boston. Around here would be in Boston. Uh, Western Mass or closer to Lawrence, it might be in the Lawrence field office. New Hampshire and Manchester, Maine and Portland, et cetera, et cetera. So it's filed either in person or by mail at the local field office. So the, uh, the history of the deferred action, just to give a little more background uh, into the program, it's similar to any sort of um, criminal uh, prosecutor or enforcer of the law um, that, you know, as, as we all know, uh, there are finite resources uh, within DHS uh, or within Suffolk County with the DA's office or with any state's attorney or, or U.S. attorney's office. Um, it would be uh, impossible to enforce the law to the fullest extent on everybody who's here in the United States uh, who is subject to enforcement of the law. So uh, a few decades ago, USCIS uh, decided that they say, you know, we have to defer action on some what they call favorable cases or humanitarian cases. And so what they say, again, they say, if we assume there are several million, um, perhaps more uh, undocumented people currently in the United States, um, how can we either prioritize cases or say that certain cases we're going to defer action on, we're not going to enforce the law on and allow them to remain here in a temporary renewable uh, legal state. Um, so again, this is just sort of the history. It's, it's just like any um, criminal enforcement of the law, any DA's office, state's attorney's office, et cetera. Uh, and like Aloha mentioned before, it allows for a temporary protection for some categories of people. Again, whether that's for DACA, for children, whether it's for medical deferred action for, for people who might qualify um, in this capacity. So uh, next slide, Lo. Thank you. So question, so who qualifies? Again, just going back to the basics, it has to be a compelling case of humanitarian concern, um, something really difficult, um, urgent. And when it, we mean urgent is there are medical treatment happening. It can't be something in the future um, so if a client comes to you and say, you know, I've been diagnosed with this, but my treatments are going to start next year, that's probably not an urgent type of case. Uh, so that's when you can tell the client, say, well, I recommend that you get in touch with me uh, when you start your treatment. In the meantime, you can start gathering medical letters, um, request a copy of your records, and just a what we do here in this office, I'm not sure what Dave does on his end, and if he could share, um, we have always a hard time gathering these medical documents, especially because, you know, when you're a busy practice, you're, you're working with the forms, with the memo, all that, um, but we do give that responsibility to the client, and it, it is easier for them, too, because it's their own personal information, or the, let's say if it's a child needing medical care, the parent can go sign off. Um, so it has to be urgent that there's present um, need of medical care. Um, we have kids or, or the uh, individual who needs the medical um, treatment. It could be in terms of an emotional, could be developmental or anything physical. A recent case that we received an approval was a child who's in the um, spectrum of autism. So he is doesn't, he's in the low functioning. So there's a lot of uh, required therapy um, from speech to behavior. 
Um, so that case, um, it did take a few um, tries, um, and, and Dave can explain the whole process of convincing USCIS this kid continues to need treatment, this kid needs to stay here, and the, the family with this child also needs this for them to allow to stay here. Um, you also have to show, again, as I mentioned earlier, a lack of availability of treatment in the home country. Um, you have to do some research, right? Go into the state reports to, um, and we include articles in the region where the child or the individual is seeking treatment to the hospital where they would potentially, uh, we have cases where folks come from impoverished areas. And so when they seek treatment for a hospital, it's usually um, state-funded clinics, um, and they tend to be remote areas. So but it's for, for them to seek any type of treatment, they have to travel um, long hours. So we show um, that, yes, there may be a clinic or a hospital or, or a doctor out there, but to get to that place or facility, it, it takes a lot for this family. Um, question also is who can be included in this application? You can include immediate family members of the sick child or adult. Um, every case that that I've also, including Dave, uh, we included siblings. So you can include parents, siblings. Um, I've never included an aunt and uncle. I don't think you can do that. I think it has to be immediate family members. Um, what makes this program unique? Uh, for most immigration benefits, um, and besides, you know, you'd have to show good more character and all that. In cases like this, you, you do need to show hardship. Um, for an example, as you most of you are familiar with the 42B cancellation for non-LPRs or LPRs, they do require a way uh, a hardship context where you have to show that there's going to be hardship, whether it be extreme or an exceptional unusual. In this case, you can also show it would be a hardship to the immigrant himself. Um, so the, the context in itself, when you're drafting this memo, um, you can show the hardship goes to everyone, right? If the parents remove, the parents not gonna be available. Um, if the child doesn't receive the treatment, the child is gonna be affected back home. So not in, in other cases, you have to show it to the US or the LPR, um, individual, the qualified relative, but in this context, you can play around a little bit with the facts and you can include that the hardship. And you can also say it's a hardship as a whole to the entire family. Um, so that, that's what's unique about um, what and how you can show hardship. Yeah, just a couple things to, to pick up on that. Um, so number one, um, with what Eloy just mentioned about, um, you know, that we file the application, it has to be a humanitarian concern. Um, this slide that that um, Aloha mentioned, um, I actually just received a call about a week ago from the regional director uh, of USCIS, Dennis Reardon, who um, just called me up out of the blue and said, "You know, I want to talk about one of your deferred action cases." And you know, I was very excited. Uh, you know, the regional director calling you up uh, out of the blue to talk about a case. Um, but he said, you know, we conducted our own research and we believe that actually your, your client who is currently undergoing treatment for breast cancer can be just fine in Colombia. And, you know, I said, well, what are, what are you talking about? I mean, that's, uh, 
you know, we've, we've conducted our own research, we submitted documents, and he said, well, you know, we've consulted with our partners from the Department of State, and they've said that, you know, there, there is treatment available um, in Colombia. It may not be as, you know, extensive and, uh, you know, as successful here in the United States, but, you know, it's just, again, to echo two things. Number one, um, it really does need to be a serious humanitarian concern. Um, they will, USCIS will do their own investigation. Um, and number two, you know, be prepared to have to defend uh, defend what you submit. Um, this isn't something where you just, if you have a letter from a medical professional saying, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, Ms. Gonzalez should be able to stay here in the United States. Um, you have to really be able to, to defend it beyond um, just say a recommendation from uh, the medical professional. Um, then one other thing real briefly that Aloha mentioned, I think it was a couple slides ahead about what makes the program unique. Um, it really should be stressed. Um, and I know that, that it was discussed, but it really, um, there are so few uh, benefits within immigration law that you can apply for without having what's called a qualifying relative, you know, without having a, a spouse or a parent or a child who's a US citizen. And this provides the opportunity for really the entire family without any uh, immigration ties to the United States uh, to be able to apply for temporary legal status. Um, and so this is really a, a great opportunity um, if there is a serious humanitarian concern, but you know there might not be the qualifying relative that you need in order to qualify for other immigration benefits. Dave, I just wanted to chime in on that, um, how it's so unique. Um, when I first started doing these cases, um, I had, it was just a, a, what do you call it, blessing disguise. Um, I had a gentleman call the office and saying that I was looking for him because his visa extension was denied and they had issued him an NTA and the ICE agent was calling him about him getting booked and all that, um, continue with booking because he was already NTA'd by USCIS. Um, so ERO wanted to meet with him and I said, well, let me go over, you know, you should go through an intake process with my firm, my office, and then we'll go from there. Um, immediately, there is obviously a child in that family requiring urgent medical care. And I said, you know what? I think we should propose to them that the fact that you have a child here who needs medical care, um, have them allow you to stay um, and not put you in any program because, you know, ICE can initiate, you know, these check-ins and or put him in under GPS so that they have all these um, programs. And it was just a quick call to the agent. He asked me to send a copy of the packet to him as soon as I put it together. I did. And he said, okay, he's fine. Just keep notifying me how the process is coming along. So it is almost like a way to um, extend to other agencies like, you know, like ERO, as you mentioned, um, and, and, and negotiate where, you know, there's, we're not, we're very limited in, in, in areas of relief, like as Dave mentioned, but this is a unique and it's available. So it, it was, it was good that we we're able to share that and be able to produce that opportunity for the client to be able to stay here with some sort of, of some sort of piece that he has a pending case with the USCIS um, and that he's allowed to continue his stay here and his child will continue treatment. Right. 
we're going to talk about the process. How do we, how do we, you know, file and how does it happen? <laughs> right. So I think the, uh, the slide is a couple, a couple slides ahead, but the, uh, basically the, the process that we're going to talk about, there we go. Um, the, the way that uh, this process works, and again, we're going to talk about the, the specific contents of the packet and what needs to be included uh, when we file, but just sort of an overview of the process for now. We have our packet with our medical documentation and our, um, our forms and our photos and everything, put everything together. Uh, as I mentioned before, we can either file it in person at the local field office or we can file it by mail. Uh, to the local field office. Um, obviously, not. Every, I mean, my office is uh, only a couple minutes walk from the field office, so I usually like to uh, walk it over in person. I know that's not uh, realistic for for everyone, but um, either way to to file it in person or or by mail at the local field office. Um, as you can see with number two, you wait for a response, wait for a response, wait for a response, uh, and eventually uh, you will get either a receipt or a request for evidence. Um, the receipt is not like a receipt that you would get if you file, say, a work permit application or an adjustment of status application with a lockbox or a service center. Um, it won't have a case number, which we're going to get into. That's one of the major issues later on. It won't have any type of information other than it's a letter from the field office director stating uh, and I believe we have a redacted copy of, of one receipt that my office received that it's just going to say, you know, dear so-and-so, uh, um, this letter will reflect that we have received your application for deferred action. This does not mean that um, you've been approved. It just means that the case has been received. That's it. Um, it's almost, I mean, it's nice to acknowledge that they've received it, but it's incredibly frustrating in that uh, that's the extent of it at that point. Um, or they might just immediately issue you a request for evidence. Um, that could be based on any um, part of the submission that we filed with the, the field office. They may say we need updated medical records. Again, because it takes a year for them to get back to you, they may need updated records. Um, they may require passport style photos or a copy of a visa or anything like that. They may notify you by mail um, through a request for evidence. Um, after you receive the receipt of the request for evidence, they'll schedule you for a biometrics notice, uh, your client for a biometrics uh, appointment. Uh, and I believe we also have a redacted copy uh, of that as well, which we can share later on. Um, it's the same uh, process for people applying for deferred action as it would be for a work permit or adjustment of status. Um, you go to the same office, you bring the same, uh, the notice as well as a photo identification. Um, just a couple minute appointment, that's it. Uh, but anyone 14 or older, just like for any other immigration benefit, uh, they need to be fingerprinted and taken a photo as well. Um, after the biometrics notice, uh, one of two things could happen. Either um, an interview is scheduled and you have to appear in person in an interview. Uh, to be honest, I don't remember the last time I, I had a client with an interview. I think it was about five years ago. Um, it certainly hasn't been since... Um, the pandemic uh, in March of 2020. Uh, it may have been a little bit before then, but I'm not sure. Um, so what we're seeing now is um, after the biometrics notice, 
Um, either were contacted like I was last week by um, one of the directors who was adjudicating the case, um, or it goes directly to a decision. And as you see from number six, it's similar to number two. You wait, you wait, you wait some more, and then you are issued a decision in the mail. Um, and we have a copy of, again, a redacted copy of the approval notice. So you'll see, you know, what does it look like if USCIS uh, alerts you that they, they have approved or granted the application for deferred action. Hey, before we jump into the next slide, um, this is just a question to you, and I, I think it's important uh, for everyone here to know. In terms of the waiting time, um, can you give us a timeline usually from the time of you, you know, the, the first receipt, which is just a letter, um, to the biometrics and, and to the potential uh, approval or for the decision, I should say? Sure. So, um, Sort of, um, uh, it's almost jumping ahead a little bit. It's one of the major issues with the case, but I'll, I'll try and give um, an estimation at this point. Basically, um, we've seen some cases from start to finish take uh, about five or six months. And we've seen some cases that uh, pending for about two years before uh, were issued uh, a decision. And it can be really quick, um, for example, um, on a different case, we had uh, a client who had their biometrics scheduled about six months after we filed uh, the initial packet. And then almost immediately after, we received a call from um, one of the field office or the deputy field office directors in Boston. And then a decision was issued almost immediately after that. Um, so it could be really quick. Uh, more likely, uh, it's going to take, I would say, for the whole entire process, uh, usually between one to one and a half years. Thank you. So the possible decisions. Okay, so uh, there are two, like we said, there are two possible ways that this application can go. Um, we'll start with the good news. Um, if they decide, USCIS decides to grant the application for deferred action, um, what that allows the, uh, uh, the applicant is it allows them to apply for work authorization immediately. Um, and it provides for up to two years of lawful presence and lawful status. Um, it's a little complicated. Um, are they in status or out of status, which uh, is a little more complex uh, of an immigration issue. But for purposes of today, um, what it does is it, it, they don't accrue unlawful presence uh, while they're here during that two-year period. They're allowed to apply for a work permit for a social security number um, and again, that would be uh, anyone who's included in the application. So for example, uh, most of the cases that we have are say mother and her son or mother, father, and their two kids. Um, could be any, any uh, iteration of that. Um, if it's approved or if it's granted, uh, it can be renewed um, indefinitely. Um, I've had my office open for about eight years now and um, we, just, we just filed our fourth application for uh, the first client that we had who uh, was granted deferred action. So, you know, she applied something like 2015, 18, 20, and now in 23, something like that. So um, there's no limit to the amount of time that USCIS can keep renewing the application, uh, but it's granted for a maximum of two years. Um, in the event that USCIS opts to deny uh, the application for deferred action, um, they don't provide a reason. It's sort of similar to if you apply uh, affirmatively for asylum, they'll give you a form letter. If they just choose to refer you to court to deny the case, they'll say, um, we are referring the case to court because 
you didn't show nexus to a protected ground. There's no detail or no sort of additional information given, uh, just like in this case, where they'll say, at this time, USCIS is choosing to not exercise deferred action in this case. Um, doesn't prevent you, like Aloha mentioned earlier, <clears throat> doesn't prevent you from reapplying or applying again down the road. Um, but something to look out for, um, which is a concern, although we haven't seen it so much here in Boston, is that if you're denied, um, at least, you know, this was the fear, uh, one of the million different policy memoranda uh, that were published by the Trump administration said, uh, anytime someone applies for any immigration benefit, they're denied, immediately serve them with a notice to appear and they have to go to court. And so the concern was that, um, you know, if you apply for adjustment of status or for, um, you know, removal of your conditions of your permanent residency or any normal immigration benefit uh, along the way and you're denied, um, USCIS has the right and, and may intend to serve you with a notice to appear and tell you to go to court. Um, with deferred action, all the cases are inherently humanitarian in nature. Uh, there's a medical condition, there's an emotional consideration, developmental consideration. Um, so the hope is that the same rules wouldn't apply. And at least here in Boston, we've seen that the officers do not issue a notice to appear typically. Um, we have heard of cases um, in Philadelphia, in St. Louis, in uh, Houston, I believe, in Florida, um, where if they deny the case, they will serve a notice to appear. And then if you're not eligible for any other immigration benefit, that's when you um, run the risk of, of removal at that time. And so that's something to be aware of, that it's a remote possibility, but it is a possibility in this case. Um, Dave, I have actually two things I wanted to mention. Um, one, if that were to happen, right, if the if it's denied, which I've never seen it happen here as well, um, and you've been doing this um, a lot longer than I have with medical deferred cases. Um, so look at potential relief, right? Because if it's denied um, and you have a good case, don't fear <laughs> because potentially you may have a 42B case if there is a qualifying relative and that, that qualifying relative is the one that would experience the hardship. So that's one point. The other is, uh, from your experience of what you have heard from others, the cases that have been denied, um, how many times do you try or do you just wait until you have a stronger case or you just keep trying to see if you're going to have better luck next time? What's been your experience? Yeah, so um, the, I'll take this, the, the second question first. It's, it's interesting because the... Um, you know, I, I just had, I think, thinking of a separate case where we had... Um, a, a guy who has been in the country for, uh, for about 30 years, this was not a deferred action case, um, but you know, like a lot of um, people from Colombia, he had sent his passport back to his home country to get a visa put in it to return to him here in the US. Um, you know, again, it's a pretty common situation, um, but he, the first time we applied, he had an officer who was adjudicating his case who said, you know, well, you had a visa put into your passport in 2003, and then you don't have any proof that you came in lawfully after you applied at that point. So we have to assume that you uh, committed fraud and then entered the U.S. unlawfully after having already been unlawfully present. I mean, just a totally nonsensical decision that caused a lot of uh, stress to the family and also to us. Um, and the reason I bring that up is that we reapplied um, with the same documentation and had a different officer adjudicate the case. 
And the officer here at the local field office said, well, obviously he just sent the passport and returned it. You know, he, uh, there's no reason that he would enter unlawfully after being issued a visa. It doesn't make sense. And so with other cases, you could have the same exact submission and have a different officer and adjudicate it a completely different way. A lot of it is dependent on the actual ISO, the Immigration Services Officer, who receives the case. For deferred action, at least in the Boston office, and I believe it's the case for all the offices, there's one officer who uh, is in charge of the program. And then, as we'll get into eventually, it also, the district director is involved, the field office director, the regional director, all of those people are the same. And so it's not like a situation where you can reapply and expect to have a totally different adjudication. Um, now, that being said, you can, as you mentioned, Eloy, you can uh, supplement the record with more documentation. If the situation changes in a way that's more beneficial to your client, um, you can apply with more documentation. You can also um, seek out potentially an expert in their home country to provide a letter to, to say, you know, there's no way that this child can obtain suitable medical care in our, in our country. Um, so you can reapply, but again, it's unlikely, um, unless the situation has dramatically changed or you have more evidence that um, you'd be able to get a different decision the second time. Very good, thank you. Um, so we're gonna talk about now how to assemble a packet, right? That's important. And I always think the first impression is what we want to be best. Uh, so you do wanna spend time especially um, Dave's going to talk about what we're going to talk about later about the medical records portion of the packet. Um, but you need your G28 uh, for the applicants, for each applicant, uh, a G325A for those that have been practicing for a while. Those, that's the annoying form, <laughs> biographic form. I used to, so back in like early 2000s, um, when I was a paralegal, um, that was a, a form we had to include with every packet, almost with mm -hmm. immigration, like adjustment packet. We had to include the G325A. So I know this form, like I can close my eyes and type out the information. I've done so many of them. So for this, it brings back memory at that time. Um, ID docs. So birth certificates of each applicant has to be included as well, including the child, um, marriage certificates, passport visas. Um, you need translation, so make sure you include them. Um, if it's not in English, you need to have that translated. Um, declaration of any and all applicants, that's important because each of them has their story and each of them has to convince, right, that they are seeking this benefit so they can help this individual who's seeking treatment. So the way we do a declaration is we do a little bit of a background, you know, how life has been prior to entry to the U.S., and then we include information how life has been here, how uh, the importance of the medical care. Um, and then we end with, you know, please approve our request. Um, you also should be including the health insurance information. Um, and this is something maybe Dave can, can chime in and add more to it. Um, they wanna see how are the treatments, who's paying for these treatments. Um, so if, the, let's say, for example, it's a child, this child um, under a, a mass health program. And so you need to include copies of the IDs, the in, insurance IDs. Um, also letters from medical professionals. And it has to be, you can include, I have, um, I 
Dave can chime in on that too. Um, include all the letters you have, right? Sometimes clients um, have tried other types of, um, have maybe applied for something different in the past. They kept a letter from a doctor who did the first diagnosis. Um, they kept that letter, that's fine. You can include everything obviously that's pertinent and helpful, but you do have to have current letters, have current dates. So if it took you six months to build this case, which it may happen, um, I would highly, strongly recommend um, if you have to send it out, uh, sometimes we send things because you know it, it's ready, but it could use a little more. In the meantime, continue to ask the client, you know, you're going to need because there's a good chance they're going to request current letters. Um, so do try your very best to include current letters. Um, school information. So IEPs, letters from teachers. Um, you can also include um, the progress reports, especially if it's a disability issue or condition um, and the, there's um, special classes for the child. You want to show the um, classes that the, cl the child's currently um, taking. Um, so that's also important. So Dave, could you tell us a little bit about how do you show um, the medical care in home country versus here? How do you show that there's lack of not just availability, but adequate care? Yeah, that's that's probably the most difficult uh, part of preparing the, the packet to be sent off to USCIS because uh, it, it is our responsibility as applicants to um, prove not only that they're receiving care in, in the United States, the child or the parent or anyone, um, but that there's not suitable care in their home country. Um, so that could be a reason that they might choose to deny the case. If, Like I mentioned for the conversation I had with uh, Dennis Reardon the other day that he said, you know, you have to provide more evidence to show that um, given the current state of, of your client that she can't receive adequate medical care in her home country. So we, we like to do that through um, two ways usually. We have um, research or investigation that we conduct ourselves. Um, that could be documents from the Department of State, from the United Nations, from uh, you name it, you know, the usual, the usual suspects, so to speak, um, that we can provide either online or through print uh, or other media uh, to show, you know, the current state of affairs in their home country. And then ideally, um, either they were in contact or are still in contact with um, a medical professional in their home country. And the medical professional, um, I've seen that these letters really do carry a lot of weight. Um, USCIS tends to defer. Let's say, for example, I have a, another case um, that was recently approved for a child from Ecuador, and his, um, his pediatrician provided a detailed letter stating, you know, I've known this child since he was born. Um, these are the conditions that he currently suffers from. Um, we do not have the capacity nor uh, anywhere in this country to, uh, to provide suitable or adequate medical care. Um, so that would be something that, that's really nice to include because you have a medical professional on their letterhead stating you know, exactly what USCIS needs to hear. And so if you have that combined with other investigation or other evidence that you can compile, um, that should be enough to prove that they just cannot go back to their home country for whatever the humanitarian condition is. Thank you, Dave. Um, I also like to mention recently we had a case of a kid who's dealing with a tumor in his brain, sadly, um, very young, 11 years old, um, from Brazil. 
and um, the parents brought in news articles from here where the child's um, story was out in the community about how he, you know, not only was he such a special kid and did so well in school, it's just that this, it became uh, publicized in the community. Um, so you could add those in too, show the relevance and the, I would say, I wouldn't say national interest, but there's a community interest as well to have this family here and, and to have this child to continue treatment. So um, do work around it. It's something that you can play around with and, and add more to um, to the need of not equipped care, but also the community interest of others. Uh, do include a short memorandum addressing not only the eligibility, um, you can also mention um, policy. Um, we have the uh, prosecutorial discretion policy terms you can use in there. Um, you can come up you know, with some case law that you think would be helpful, but um, you definitely do want to include a memo and a very nice, very straightforward exhibit list um, is also my recommendation to show them, um, you know, these are the documents added here. Um, each applicant do, they do need to provide two passport style photos. Uh, going into medical records, because that's also, I would say, a good portion of what's going to be in your packet. You don't want to include every medical sheet out there, right? Um, some of our medical records, you know, a typical medical record could be 1,000 to 1,500. And if it's someone that's been in treatment, you know, for years, you're, you're going to get a lot of documents. Um, so you do want to detail and have something written from your, the medical provider. And you can pull records from there. So I'll give you an example. I had that this recent client, that the child um, who has brain um, cancer, we included evaluation. So he was going through, you know, oncology, um, hematology um, treatment. So we had evaluations of, that provided not for this case or particularly for, for our case, um, but um, the mother kept those copies. So we, you know, highlight. And then when I drafted the memorandum, we, we pull those, um, those liners there and then included into it. So you can do that. Um, and you want to provide USCIS a timeline. Uh, how long, right? Is this going to be short term? Again, most likely you're going to have a favorable decision if it's long-term treatment. I've not tried anything short-term. I, I shy away because it is an extensive, complex type of work with putting together. Um, so if the client's not going to have long-term treatment, there's a likelihood that you know it's not going to be granted. So you do want to be able to uh, make sure that you press on the need for continuous medical care here and that this is long-term, potentially um, life-term, right? And this will never end. You know, this, this cancerous or this disease or if it's a condition or syndrome um, that it's gonna be for, for the end of time, I should say. Um, so let's talk about a, what unique issues um, that you have encountered or you think we should do. Right. So and unfortunately, I'm just looking down. It's already 245. So I think we're going to run through the last few slides. But this one, this one's really important because, um, you know, if you choose to apply to file this this application and, and um, this request, um, there are a lot of issues that come up along the way um, that make this program unique and make it different from 
any other program within USCIS or within the immigration system. So number one, there's no case number. So remember how I said earlier, you may get a receipt, you may get a biometrics notice. Neither of them will have any receipt number. It's not going to be IOE, a bunch of numbers, ZBO, a bunch of numbers, uh, SRC, none of that. Um, it's not going to have a case number. And so if you want to call the 800 number to say, hey, I filed this case, I haven't heard anything, they're not going to be able to provide any information. Um, if you call up the 800 number, even after the receipt has been issued, they're not going to have any information. Um, there's also a really complex and extensive hierarchy of decision making. So the case gets routed to the supervisory immigration services officer who is in charge of the program. They review the case. They send it up to uh, the district director. They send it to the regional director. Then they send it, you know, if there's another higher level or back down or back up. And so there's just a very strict and extensive uh, routing process where a bunch of people need to sign off on it before the immigration services officer can return uh, with a decision. So it's a lot of time and effort and energy spent with that. Uh, there's also no posted guidelines or timelines. So you can go on the USCIS uh, website, you can say, I have an application for a work authorization that we filed that is at the National Benefit Center and it's outside of the posted guidelines. You can file the e-inquiry online, you can call the 800 number and get any information. You cannot do that with a deferred action case. Uh, there is no posted guidelines, there's no timelines, nothing like that. Um, and then finally, for new cases that, uh, for people who have never been involved with USCIS or in the immigration system before, they have to create a whole new A file. Um, and A file is just what they call, uh, it's short for alien file, that um, is basically the folder that USCIS has for your client. They, they issue them a new A number, they create the file with their photos and their documents and everything. And that takes a lot of time because the field offices are just not used to, uh, to doing that. When they receive the files, um, the A files are already created either in the lockbox or at the service centers. And then they're routed to the field office for interview or for decision, um, but they're just not used to having to do that first step uh, here at the local field office. Um, so I think that's, um, those are the major unique issues to be aware about. Okay. Um, and you know, I believe we have just a few more minutes, but let's talk about what you do after you submit the packet and you're, you're not getting answers, you're not getting results, or it's been you know a, a while since you've heard anything, what can you do? Right, so um, it's really, really frustrating. Um, I can tell you personally, I'm sure Aloha would uh, feel the same way that uh, you file everything, you know that it's been received and you're just waiting on any information. Um, you cannot request an info pass at this point. That sort of went the way, uh, as they say, went the way of the dodo bird when uh, Trump became president. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not uh, a possibility. Um, what I like to do, I know who the officer in Boston and in Lawrence is uh, who adjudicates these forms. Um, so I do like to, if I'm there for another interview, if I'm there for any other reason, I do like to sort of keep my head on a swivel and look around if I do see them, um, you sort of feel like James Bond, you're just sort of looking around, you know, you're trying to trying to be suave, uh, not usually successful, but, um, you know, try to try to seek them out. And then, you know, if you do see them uh, respectfully, of course, uh, approach them and to say, hey, we're waiting on a decision on this case. Here's a letter that we sent. Um, we're just looking for any update. 
Um, the AILA USCIS liaisons are fantastic, both uh, in Boston and in Lawrence and other states in, in New England as well. Um, they're great to work with. Um, and then finally, like with a lot of cases that are pending for a really long time that you're not getting anywhere, uh, you can use, um, we have a good relationship with Senator Markey and Congresswoman Presley's office um, if your client lives in their jurisdiction. Um, but it is a little tough. Like I said, there's no case number or receipt number. And that's the first thing that um, the liaison is going to ask for, the congressional representative is going to ask for, they're going to say, we need a case number in order to inquire as to the status. Um, so sometimes they they can um, sort of form a breakthrough, um, but I would definitely recommend reaching out to the AILA USCIS liaison because they do have contacts within the local field offices who can inquire into the status of any pending case. Thank you, Dave. Um, so important things to bear in mind. Um, I don't see any questions yet in the queue, so I'll continue. Um, for now. Um, so you have to press this on with the client and you have to kind of like, you know, let them know over and over. It's not an application for a green card. It's not going to lead to one. Uh, often clients will think, oh, my child's sick and this child is born here. So I've been here for 10 years. So I think this is what I'm getting. I'm getting a green card. Uh, but you have to explain the difference to them that this is not, you know, a case of what they call it out there, the 10-year law. It's that common popular term. Um, you can say, you know, this is just so that, you know, you could stay here lawfully for that period of time and you get a work permit if approved. Um, and, and do note that this program can be revoked or amended at any time. Um, pitfalls to avoid. Um, you do want to include your G. Um, 28 and the G3258. It's really important, not just a memo. That's a form that actually I've learned to do these cases through Dave, by the way. He was the one that mentored me uh, when I first started doing these cases. Um, so that was really, a, I would have probably done it without it not knowing, because again, there's no instructions out there on how to do them. So it's not like when you go to the CIS website and you're like, oh, medical deferred, and they give you the whole checklist. Um, so thankfully, you know, Dave was able to guide me through. Be careful the information you're sharing. Um, very, very important. You got to do FOIA. If the client has an immigration history or has had an extension denied, whatever contact he has had, uh, or you may think he may have um, in, in a policy in this office, every new client, regardless of their, if they had any contact with immigration, we do FOIAs. Um, and if a client has a, medic, um, a criminal record, you want to do a quarry too, because sometimes clients may forget information, right? Because they, they're looking into that too. Um, uh, so let me um, now talk about, Dave, if you can end with what eligible of other benefits are out there um, in terms with immigration, uh, or what can it lead to, or types of other uh, relief that, and, and besides the medical deferred, is there anything else? And then if you can talk about if there are any uh, public benefits available when deferred action is approved. Sure. So, um, you know, the, anytime you speak to someone or screen someone in your office, um, like we've said before, it's, it's important to always see what other options they may have. Um, you know, in the event that uh, the application for deferred action is not successful. Um, like Aloha just mentioned, the 10-year the law, also known as cancellation of removal, um, that's sort of the first thing to bear in mind because if, um, if you have someone you think might qualify for deferred action, 
you're already talking about a humanitarian condition that is, is pretty serious. Um, the level for cancellation of removal is extremely, sorry, exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. So really, really high level, probably akin to what we're looking for in terms of uh, a case for deferred action. Um, and in fact, if you have a US citizen, um, perhaps the child on behalf of whom the parents would be wanting to apply for deferred action, they may not mind a denial and then a referral to court, a notice to appear in court, because then they can litigate their claim in court if they qualify otherwise, meaning if they have the 10 years, if they have the good moral character, the discretion, et cetera. Um, so they may not mind um, a denial, but then again, if the local field office thinks you might not qualify for deferred action, uh, you may have a hard time demonstrating the hardship necessary for the 10-year law. But something to bear in mind that you might, um, your client may prefer uh, to go down that road instead. Um, the other options are family-based petitions. So if you have a spouse or a child or a parent uh, who's a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, you may wish to, to go down that road instead. Um, asylum, um, again, uh, if you can prove that you have a well-founded fear of future persecution, um, that may be an option instead of applying for uh, deferred action um, or any other humanitarian benefit. Uh, but it's really important um, to screen, you know, our clients for, um, you know, for whatever they might be eligible for. So um, I, I saw a question from Paulette. I'm just going to uh, take that real quick. The uh, so if an applicant is eligible to apply for SIJ, do you recommend to apply for both? So um, there is no downside uh, to applying for multiple immigration benefits at the same time. Um, however, bear in mind with SIJ, just the first thing that comes to mind is. Uh, if there's a su successful application for um, SIJ that the parents don't receive any benefits uh, through their child. Uh, whereas with the deferred action, if say the parents are applying on behalf of the child and it's a successful application ultimately, um, the parents can get a work permit and lawful status as well. So, you know, just again, off the top of my head, I might recommend, depending on the age of the child, because of course you don't want the child to age out, um, the child and obviously not both parents because um, then they might not qualify for SIJ, but the child and their mother may wish to apply for deferred action. So then the mother has some sort of benefit that she can accrue. And then the child may also wish to apply for SIJ, um, assuming they qualify as well. Um, Aloha, how do you feel about that? Do you have any yeah, any no, I, I like this question. It made me think, I like questions like that. It's like, hmm, interesting. Uh, so, one thing is the SIJ for most of our clients, including the Brazilian nationals, there's a backlog for adjustment. So they're going to enhance that's happened here where they're going to potentially receive a deferred action um, notice so they can apply for a work permit. Um, so that's for the child itself. So it may not, like they said, benefit for the child as much, but maybe for the parent, the, what we call it the good parent, right? Because you definitely don't want to apply for the parent that's neglected or abused child. Um, but, um, you know, I'm always in the team of try as, as many options as possible because it's not going to hurt either or. You just have to be very careful what you're introducing with information. But if it's in regards to the parent benefiting uh, because the child is, is here receiving medical treatment, um, then yes, I, I think you'd, you'd, you'd have, you know, a, a good claim there for that. But yeah, good question. Thank you.
Um, Dave, and to end, just a last, uh, could you tell us, are there any public benefits or what do you recommend? So you get the approval um, and the client's like, okay, so what do I do this? Do I get any benefits besides the work permit? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, like we discussed, I, okay. I, I tend to, um, you know, it's, it's a little out of my expertise, what I what I tell my clients, um, usually if say they're referred from somebody who I know at Boston Children's, um, they'll usually have a social worker or, or somebody sort of a liaison that is assisting them um, handling their medical appointments for their child um, or for the parent. Um, so I usually refer them, I say, you know, speak to um, whatever professional, you know, case manager, social worker who uh, is working with you um, to see what types of benefits you might be eligible for. Now, I will say um, we did receive some pushback uh, a few years ago because I had a client who wanted to apply for housing assistance uh, and they had to show, uh, it's called uh, PRUCOL, PRUCOL, it's Permanent Residence Under the Color of Law. Um, and it's sort of a vague term in Massachusetts, um, but they should, given the way it's defined, they should qualify and in fact, uh, my client was able, we were able to provide a letter that she submitted to the DTA um, to prove that even though she's not a permanent resident uh, or a citizen, that she is residing permanently under the color of law based on how it's defined and how um, the deferred action grant is issued from USCIS. So they may qualify for many benefits. Um, we do tend to spend a little bit of time um, preparing letters and, and um, evidence in support of their applications for uh, other benefits, but we usually have them consult with, um, you know, with a social worker, case management uh, manager, some professional um, to sort of point them in the right direction. Thank you, David. That's also been our case. It's always because it's not really our area. And I've had other colleagues ask me that same question. We had a colleague who's been doing this for some time. She's still wondering, okay, what benefits are really available? What do they actually apply? So the best start is with a social worker with a person that's already in contact and at the hospital. And so thank you so much, Dave. You provided a lot of useful information. It's been informative and thank you for your time. Thank you, Alo, and thank you everyone for coming and it's great to, um, great to see everyone.